Well, I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but the theme of our songs this morning is treasuring Christ. The first song that we sang has this as kind of a chorus. Jesus over everything. He reigns forevermore. Our song for all eternity, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does it mean, Jesus over everything? What does it mean to treasure Christ? We probably hear that a lot in the things that you read, maybe even the things that you sing. Treasuring Christ. What what does it mean to treasure Christ? So, I didn't provide this space in your notes, but there is a, the back of your sheet is blank, so I would encourage you. Why don't you write that question? What does it mean to treasure Christ? I want to spend a little time talking about that before we jump into our passage today. It's in Luke chapter 14. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to do that too. Luke chapter 14, we're going to be in verses 25 to 35. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 274, I believe. So, excuse me, 874, that's it. What does it mean to treasure Christ? Maybe I should start with a question, what do you value? What do you want more than anything else? Maybe, what gets you emotionally attached? Like, you are so emotionally attached to this that when it doesn't happen, there's like, ugh. Like, when Ohio State loses to Michigan. Like, ugh. Never happens. (laughs) We're going to write that off. We're not going to feel any attachment to that at all. What occupies first place in your life? What do you orient your life around? What do you do in order to protect whatever it is that you desire the most? It it provides this passionate pursuit to obtain. You want it, and you're going to do whatever it takes to protect it, to preserve it, to get it, to have it, to make sure that it's not hurt or taken away from you. What is that one thing? That's what your treasure is. The definition for treasure is to keep carefully, to hold or to keep as precious, to collect, to store up. But, but when Jesus talks about treasure, and we're going to talk about in our passage today, he's talking about something that you value, something that you delight in, something that just creates this absolute sense of of craving and interest, something that you cherish, something that you hold as supreme. That's what we call treasure. For for many of us, of course, we know that we need to treasure Christ. We've we've heard that many times, but but the question, the the honest evaluation of our life and an honest evaluation of your day-to-day, what you spend the most time on, what you desire the most in life, what, what capitalizes your attention is likely not Christ. Is likely not relationship with God. Is is likely you don't get up in the morning and, and, and and you want as the first priority to spend time with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that as a as a general rule, but how easy is it is it to be distracted? Like you, you get up for the right reasons, but 
for whatever, for whatever reason, your, your, your phone beeps at you and, and, and you want to catch up on that text or that telegram or that social media post or the, or the news for the day and it sucks you in and Jesus is just a blip on the radar in the day and in the week. When weighed in the balance between all of the competing priorities that we have, Jesus is barely a blip on the radar. Matter of fact, of course, our children need our undivided attention. That, that's good, right? Our job has so many demands. Our friends, of course, are really important. Our studies, if we're in school, are, are relentless. Our activities require practice and performance and games so that we can play. We, we have commitments we need to keep. You just don't understand, Andrew. I'm tired. My day is hard. I get home. I want to rest. I, I need leisure. I need, I need to veg out. I'm so tapped out. But when it comes down to it, we realize that we're not treasuring Christ. We're not pursuing him. We don't really want him. We're not making him as the priority of our day. You know, an honest evaluation is, is we don't exist for Christ. Christ exists for us. That's how we operate. He answers my prayers. He fixes my problems. He meets my needs. He heals my sickness. He blesses my efforts. And so I'm at the center. Jesus has very little to do with the center, ultimate priority, unless Jesus is helping to fix my problems or making my life better. But that's not how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, David says this in verses 2 and verse 11. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And he concludes the psalm with this. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God wants for us to find our satisfaction, our delight, our joy, our pleasure. I, I like how David says, pleasures forevermore. You can fill them up. There's like overflowing. There is no, there's no limit to the pleasure we can enjoy in God if we are treasuring him. Is this true of us? And, and I stand up here today and I preach this message and I'm preaching to me because I realize how far away from this I really want to be, how far away I really am, okay? So it's really hard for me to talk about treasuring Christ when I see the deficiencies in my own life, but, but maybe that's good because we can come together, we can recognize our own brokenness and, and where we are, and we can say, I'm not treasuring Christ the way I want to but I want to treasure Christ more tomorrow than I am today. Can we say, take everything away as long as I have Christ, I have it all. I am satisfied, I am full of joy, I have pleasures in God forevermore. Can we say, Lord, you have permission to take away my health. Lord, you have permission to take away my family. 
Lord, you have permission to take away my friends, my job, my comfort, my toys, my stuff, my 401k. Lord, you can take away my freedom. You can take away my safety. Give me danger. Give me poverty. Give me hunger. Give me countless enemies. Give me painful disease as long as I have you. It's enough. It's good. Because you're my treasure. And if I have you, it's enough. For this person, Jesus is the prize. He is the treasure. Maybe you're saying, come on, Andrew. (laughs) Come on. Just back off a little bit because what you're talking about here is for the super Christians. What you're talking about here is for the A-team. What you're talking about here is for the the elite people in the kingdom, okay? You're not not talking about the normal believer here. But, But Jesus wants us to understand from this passage today He wants us to understand there is no compromise. This is a universal standard that will be true of every single Christian. He says three times in this passage, if this is not true, you cannot be my disciple. If this is not true, you cannot be my disciple. And a third time, if this is not true, you cannot be my disciple. And Jesus is not talking about the A-team. Jesus is talking about anybody who would say they belong to him, anyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus. You cannot be a Christian. You do not belong to me if I am not your treasure because you are not counting my value the way you should. So Jesus speaks in no uncertain terms. And we we get to this point and we're like, Jesus, we just back off. Will you just tap the brakes a little bit? Give give me an opportunity to to, to just kind of digest this. But but Jesus keeps upping the ante, keeps raising the stakes. He he keeps helping his would-be followers to recognize what it really means to be a disciple of his. Because Jesus cares more about the faith of those who are following him and not allowing them to just get sucked in and to be blinded by the fact that, hey, we're with Jesus, so we must be part of Jesus. Jesus speaks in these clear, uncompromising terms because of his commitment to the word of God and his commitment to faith in the Holy Spirit to carry out that work in the hearts of those who he will save. We find in John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, Jesus' commitment to speaking the words from the Father. He says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So so we, we can't parse out, well, Jesus said one thing, but what the Father really believes is something different. No, Jesus is speaking the words of the Father. They are united in this commitment to discipleship. And so Jesus can speak in such polarizing terms because of his absolute confidence in the Holy Spirit to draw hearts as he sees fit. We find that in John chapter three. This nighttime visitor, this this, uh, 
uh, leader of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who comes and asks a question to Jesus. Jesus says this in John 3, 5 to 8. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with, the, with everyone who is born of the spirit. You can't lay hold of wind. You can't tell wind where to blow. You can hear it, you can feel it, but you have no influence over wind. The spirit in this analogy is what gives life, what, what births us spiritually. And the Holy Spirit takes the word of God, applies it to a heart, and draws sinners to himself. It is the spirit's work to regenerate. It is the spirit's work to convict. It is the Holy Spirit's work to draw. And so Jesus can keep saying really hard things because Jesus is absolutely committed to faith in the spirit's ability to draw hearts regardless of how hard the message is. You don't have to make the message sound appealing, attractive. You need to allow the message to come with truth and grace, just like Jesus. But you allow that message to draw hearts as the Holy Spirit will draw hearts. It is not your job to save people. It's God's job to save people. That removes a lot of pressure from us, by the way. And so as we treasure Christ, we commit ourselves to the same truth as Jesus speaks and teaches, the same commitment to the speaking the words of the Father and trusting the Holy Spirit's power to regenerate hearts. So as we come into our passage, we, now we move to this first point. And this first point is found for us in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. What does treasuring Christ involve? First, it involves loving Jesus more than people. If you're gonna treasure Christ, you have to love Jesus more than people. Here's what he says. Now great crowds accompanied, accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now I understand that in this particular group of verses, Jesus is talking about the family, and he puts them in three groups, father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. He's speaking about family, but, but Jesus, in speaking about the greatest human relationships, the most uh, intimate and deep relationships we have this side of eternity, he's using that as a comparison. If you must love Jesus more than even your own family, then certainly you must love Jesus more than any other person, any other friendship you will have this side of eternity. Jesus is, is, is interested in helping his audience understand what true discipleship means. And Luke is careful here to acknowledge that, that even now, during the final leg of Jesus' ministry, just a, a month or two away from the cross, that there is this, this continuing popularity that Jesus is enjoying. 
These large crowds, great crowds that have gathered even from the very beginning of his ministry going all the way back to Luke chapter four and spilling all the way to this present day. So that in Luke chapter five, verse 15, there are great crowds that were gathered to him. In Luke chapter five, verse 29, large company of tax collectors that Jesus is is eating uh, a meal with. In chapter 6, verse 17, a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people were present. We find the same in chapter 7, and then chapter 8, and chapter 9, and then chapter 12 begins this way. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling over one another, he began to say to his disciples, and he launches into his message in chapter 12, For all of Christ's strong language, the crowds continued to gather. But Luke uses a very important word here. He describes their gathering as accompanied. They accompanied Jesus. This is only used four times in the New Testament. It's a compound word that that, that uses the word with, along with the word to go or to come. So to to go with, to travel with. This is a a traveling or an accompanying or or an associating with that is happening here. Large crowds that represented a pool of potential disciples. They follow because they recognize there's something special or unique about Jesus. The the words that he shares, the miracles that he performs are are somewhat extraordinary and and they're just waiting to see what what is gonna happen. We wanna be on the front lines. We wanna wanna have front row seats to see the spectacular thing that Jesus is about to do. We don't wanna miss anything. But the majority will not fully grasp the implications of what it means to be with Jesus. And remember, when we were working through Luke chapter 8, we saw throughout that entire chapter the difference between coming to Jesus versus being with Jesus. Luke builds on that here, where he refers to them going along with Jesus, but not actually following Jesus, not actually being loyal to Jesus, not actually associating with Jesus in such a way. They're, they're, they're there by association, but they're not there in terms of commitment or conviction. There's nothing that's really changed in their heart attitude about Christ. They're just curious to see what he's gonna do next. Jesus' disciples, though, are those who understand this priority. Just understand this priority of, of, of being uh, with Jesus, following Jesus, even to the point of death. In Luke chapter five, verse 11, it says, and when they had brought their boats to land, speaking of the disciples, they left everything and followed him. That's what we mean when we talk about discipleship. That's what Jesus will build on through the rest of this passage. But it's important for us to understand the significance of what's happening here. They listened to Christ's message. They showed up to church, as it were. They accompanied him where he went, but they did not truly love him. Great crowds that gathered to to be with Jesus wherever he was, to, to kind of enjoy the ride, as it were, and to see all the great things that Jesus was doing, but nothing changed in their heart. It's terrifying when you think about it. Terrifying to think that we can spend a lifetime coming to church, spend a lifetime learning about Jesus, 
and not really have the kind of heart change that identifies Jesus as a treasure. And so as Jesus will say, you are not one of my disciples. So Jesus now turns to this crowd and makes a statement about discipleship that is shocking, to say the least. In verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, this poses a challenge to us. Is Jesus speaking figuratively or is he speaking literally? I mean, because we understand, he says, honor your father and your mother, right? He says, children, obey your parents. He says, husbands, love your wives. And, and Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says, love your enemies. Even those who persecute you, love them. It's clear that Jesus is committed to loving others. And he will say, love your neighbor as yourself. So, so what is Jesus doing? Is he contradicting himself? So the difficulty for us is this word to hate. Because in the English language, it conveys this intense and passionate dislike, this extreme enmity or this active hostility. But in the, in the Greek language, this word for hate is to love less. It's the idea of preference. The parallel statement that Christ makes in, is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, where he says this, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So when Jesus speaks of hating family and hating people, he's talking about order of priority. He's talking about preference. Who do you prefer? Who is in first place? Who is ultimate for you? Of course, Jesus cares about them loving the people around them. But Jesus is speaking positively of treasuring him. How do we prefer God? How do we treasure God? As Jesus will say in a couple of parables in Matthew chapter 13, he speaks about this principle of treasuring. He says in Matthew chapter 13, verses, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of uh, fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great wealth or great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is bringing to the forefront, what do you treasure? What is worth your pursuit? What are you moving towards? What are you longing for? What is worth everything that you own to have? Are you treasuring the kingdom? Are you treasuring God? Of course, as we bring this to our own lives and evaluate ourselves to this principle, do we treasure Jesus more than family? Do you treasure Jesus more than your family? Of course, the world puts immense pressure on families. Immense pressure. You've got to give your kids the very best opportunities. Whatever the cost, whatever the time investment, you've got to position them for success. 
You've got to make sure that they have access to all the options, exposed to all of the benefits, that they don't miss any of the opportunities or any of the experiences that are afforded to them. So we give our kids everything this world has to offer, and then we give them almost nothing of God. And so we show what we truly treasure. We show what we treasure for ourselves, and we show what we treasure for our kids. When we value the things of this life over and against the things of eternity. Instead of building in the hearts and lives of our kids a desire, a craving for the things that matter, the things of, of the, the, the world to come, not a, not a pleasure or a delight in the things of this world. And it's not that we can't enjoy the things that this world has to offer. But what do we treasure? What do we value? What do we prioritize? How do we prioritize this life, this world, over the next world? The, the treasure of Christ in worshiping, in obeying, in serving, in loving him more than treasuring the things of this life, all that this world has to offer. How do we treasure Christ in our marriages? I think so often we treat our marriage the way we treat God. So marriage no longer is about a commitment to Christ. Marriage is about, do I feel loved today? Do I feel valued today by my partner? by my spouse? Are they meeting my needs? Are they asking too much from me? Are they meeting my expectations? Are they too little or too, are, they, are they too controlling? Rather than approaching marriage as Christ would have us approach marriage as we find in Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 and 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Your love to your husband is a reflection of your love to Christ. Your love to your husband, wives, paints a gospel picture of, of how you will love Christ to the end. And it's a trusting Christ, by the way, as you are loving your husband and submitting your, to your husband as you submit to Christ. You, you are saying, I trust that Jesus is bigger than my husband and Jesus can steer his heart even though I cannot. And while my husband may, may, may make very bad decisions, I know that God will protect and preserve me, and I know that God will do business with my husband to get him on the right track. I can trust in God to, to uh, preserve myself and preserve this relationship as I am doing what God has called me to do. I will trust God by submitting to my husband. I am submitting first to Christ, and then to my husband. And to you husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. In some respects, this is a, this is a greater sacrifice because we know what Christ's love for the church looked like. It, it meant leaving the glories of heaven. It, it, meant, it meant robing himself with the humility of, of flesh and all the limitations that that required. It meant exposing himself to the opposition of religious leaders, 
the difficulties of the ministry that he would have in this life, of being rejected by the masses of people, and then ultimately dying on the cross for sin. Husbands, your love for your wife reflects this beautiful picture, this portrait of Christ's love for his church only if you love that way. You sanctify your wife with the washing of the water by the word. You lay down your preferences, this issue of self-sacrifice, divesting yourself of, of what you want the most for the sake of love for your wife and love for your family. This is what God has in mind, and this is what treasuring Christ looks like. Treasuring Christ to uphold this gospel picture of love for your wife and love for your husband. And Jesus will say, you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. Did you hear that? You don't prioritize me this way. You do not belong to me. That's the modern vernacular. You are not a Christian. So Jesus moves on in verse 27. He says, whatever or excuse me, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And here Jesus is speaking um, about loving him more than comfort. You might say comfort or safety or life, however you want to fill in that blank. But the, but the idea is that you're going to love Christ regardless of, of, of the cost to yourself. The comfort, the risk, whatever jeopardy you're put into, you're going to love Christ to the end. This word for bear is the word to carry, to endure, to support. It's the same word that's used of Christ in John chapter 19, verse 17, where it says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And then not only to bear the cross, but to come after me, which uses the middle voice. It's reflexive in nature. It points back to the subject who's doing the acting and, and, and helps to, to highlight the fact that, that this person has personal responsibility to carry it through. It says his own cross, this personal commitment of accepting whatever it takes to treasure Christ, whatever the cost. Of course, the cross was a picture of grotesque suffering. It was used by the Roman Empire as a huge deterrent to rebellion. You see the lines of dozens, and if not hundreds, of, of, of individuals lining that road, suffering for hours and sometimes days, walking through, seeing them, not being able to help them in any way, recognizing that whatever they did, I don't want to happen to me. Crucifixion was reserved specifically for offenders who had rebelled against authority. So to take up one's cross referred to the practice of forcing a condemned person to carry the cross beam to his execution site. This showed that although he had rebelled against authority, that condemned person was now so completely conquered that his last act in life would be to carry his own instrument of demise to the place of his death. In a sense, it was like digging your own grave. Jesus is communicating this truth of association. 
Following me is a death sentence. Are you, real, are you willing to sign yourself up for carrying the cross, for signing your own death certificate, as it were, handing it over to me to handle and trusting that as you follow me, you may, it may likely or inevitably lead to death, but you'll get me in exchange. Same kind of humiliation, same kind of persecution, same kind of misunderstanding. Jesus, of course, expects nothing that he didn't personally accept for himself. Same commitment is described in John chapter 11 towards the, again, just a, probably a couple of weeks away from this event where Mary and Martha ask Jesus to come to Bethany to heal Lazarus. And, and, and Thomas understands in John chapter 11, verse 16, he understands how, how, how challenging that will be. He says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let us go also go that we may die with him. Now, for all the bad rap that Thomas gets of being doubting Thomas at the very end, I, I, I gotta see the wounds in his hand, I gotta put my fist in his side, well, at least here Thomas is, is, is setting the example of being the kind of disciple, okay, whatever it costs, Jesus, we're with you. We're gonna follow you wherever it takes us. It's, it's worth the cost and of course, Jesus makes the same promise in John chapter 16, verses, or excuse me, John 15, verse 18 and 20, where he says this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. I don't think we understand in Western culture how hard it should be to be a Christian. It's casual, it's easy, it's not risky for us. And so it becomes very easy for us to live on the fringe, to have a little bit of Jesus whenever it pleases us, but when it comes to actual cost and commitment and treasuring Christ, we want nothing to do with it. But, but this is the kind of commitment that Jesus is calling for from his disciples. Do you love me to the end? So that if, if it meant death, that it'd be worth it. And so that's where Jesus turns next. In verses 28 to 33, Jesus now provides a couple of illustrations of, of cost. So here we find we need to love Jesus more than everything. Love Jesus more than everything. Notice, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes out with him against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Keying in on this last phrase in verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be 
my disciple, does not belong to me, is not a Christian. This word renounce is the word to say goodbye. It's the word that's used six times in the New Testament. And and so Jesus is is setting forth these two examples to help fill out in their memory these markers that will help them continue to remember this point. The first, of course, is of this, this, this tower. Since the parable is addressed to a largely rural audience, it's likely a tower for like holding food, like, a, like we would call a, a silo, as it were, or, or a barn. It may also be the kind of watchtower for protection. But, but either way, it would have been a visible uh, construction project that everybody in the community would have seen. And so they're seeing this tower, and for whatever reason, the, the project stops in the middle, and now he's open to public humiliation or the second of a king at war. While this first illustration is one that's voluntary, where this person is making a decision to build a tower, now the second one is now he's, he's being confronted by situations that are out of his control. What will you do? Will you count the cost when you're taking initiative? Will you also count the cost when you understand you're gonna be confronted by things that are totally out of your control? Second king of war, a king who is at war, uh, this, this king comes to a place of, of a sorting out the logistics, understanding the terrain, recognizing the weaponry that he has versus his enemy. And what are the strategic or tactical advantages that he have, especially in terms of numbers of soldiers? He knows the dangers of war, not only for his people, but especially for himself. He knows what enemies do to conquered kings. How they are paraded around, how they're humiliated, and how they're killed in terrible ways. This king would have understood the consequences of a battle gone bad. The implications, of course, are clear. The life of discipleship is costly. And Jesus uses this terminology, it will cost you everything. Teens, It's going to cost you everything to love Jesus this way. We're not to be driven by what we lose. We're to be driven by what we gain. And what we gain in comparison is the treasure of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we're not driven by the loss. We we, we recognize it's temporary. We recognize it's nothing compared to the eternal worth of God himself. And so we, like others who have gone before, follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we align our hearts to treasure him. I know I've read this letter before It's a letter by Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary in the 1700s to the, to the middle of the 1800s. And, and in asking for his future wife's hand in marriage, writes this letter to, her, uh, to his father-in-law, to her dad. And here's how he presents his, his, uh, his offer. 
He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her sub, uh, subjection to the hardship and suffering of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation and insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly throne and died for her and for you? For the sake of a perishing, immortal soul, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from the heathens who are saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Essentially, sir, Will you treasure Christ by giving up what is so important to you? Finally, we find in verses 34 to 35, love Jesus to the end. Love Jesus to the end. Jesus says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we approach these last couple of verses, we maybe wonder, how are they related? How do they even fit together? And what is kind of missing for us in this translation is the first word, the Greek word, un, which is the word, therefore. So Jesus finishes all of his statements in verses 25 to 33, and he comes to verse 34, and he says, therefore, Summary, understand, get this. Here's where it comes down to. It says, therefore, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Kind of out of touch a bit with all of the uses for salt in the, in the first century culture, but as you can probably imagine, without refrigeration and with, with food that will spoil, there's got to be a way to try to preserve it. And, and the, the primary way for preservation was the use of salt. Because there was no way to keep things from, from spoiling. But the masterful way in which Jesus presents this, he uses a molecular configuration of sodium chloride salt that it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. The, the bond that these two molecules share is so intense that it is impossible to break without some outside force. And so Jesus, in speaking about the nature of salt and the authentic quality of salt, he is trying to help to emphasize the nature of a true believer. So what he is saying, salt cannot lose its flavor. And if it does, it demonstrates it never was salt to begin with. 
If you are a believer, those believers who had some casual um, uh, association with Christ, but for whatever reason fall away, they demonstrate the true nature of their heart. They never truly belonged to him in the first place. Of course, in the first century, salt from the vicinity of the Dead Sea was contaminated by something called gypsum. And if it wasn't processed correctly, it could lose its effectiveness and become tasteless. And there were times in which what looked like salt there in the Dead Sea, the salt had actually been washed away and all that was left was this impure substance that looked like salt but had none of the qualities of salt at all. Jesus is trying to draw attention to the quality of true discipleship that treasures Christ to the end. There is this enduring quality of salt that lasts to the final uh, finish line. And the nature of those, as he says in verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus has been emphasizing this throughout, throughout his ministry. In Luke chapter 6, verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. In Luke chapter 8, verses 19 and 21, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come to where Jesus is, and they, the, the crowd says, hey, your mother and brothers are here. But Jesus answers, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In Luke chapter 11, verses 27 to 28, Jesus is speaking and a woman in the crowd raises her voice and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The priority of treasuring Christ. The priority of treasuring his word. Of knowing what the word of God says and following through. Committing yourself to do what God says no matter what the cost to the very end so that as we treasure Christ we demonstrate the quality of faith that, 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 that shows that we are a true disciple we belong to him we're, we're, we're no longer like you cannot be my disciple we demonstrate that we are true disciples of Christ so if we're really honest with ourselves and I'm really honest with myself we look at this passage and we say, this isn't true of me. This, this, this is so far away from, from where I know I am. And it's so far away from, from even what I desire in my life. And so, so what do we do? Where, where does that leave us? Does that leave us in a place of saying, well, I just throw up my hands and I guess I'm never gonna get there, so I'm just gonna give up. This is, this, is, this is not worth it. No. What we do is we come to a place of recognizing how far away we are and saying, Jesus, I do not want this to be true of me. And we begin 
to hand over to Christ the things that we treasure the most. I I give to you, Lord, my family. I give to you my health. I can trust you with that. I know you're not gonna make me sick just because you enjoy seeing me suffer, but you allow this to happen to me because you know it will press me into being more like Jesus and trusting you more. So, Lord, I, I give you my health. I give you my comfort, meaning anybody who would come and oppose me Lord, I I trust you with that. Help me to walk with integrity. Help me to love my enemies. Help me to pray for those who despitefully use and persecute me so I can demonstrate a commitment to treasuring you and trusting you regardless of what people will say about my life. God, I trust you with my finances. And so, Lord, I, I want next year to show the commitment of trusting you more with how I give, with how I'm hospitable, with how I serve the body of Christ, how I press in and I'm a greater part of the fellowship that you've put me in. And Lord, I want to remove the bitterness from my life, the things that people have said about me, those offenses that have happened. I'm not gonna hang on to those anymore. I give them to you. I'm gonna trust you to vindicate me. Uh, Vengeance is yours. You will repay. I'm turning this over to you. And I'm gonna do whatever it takes, Lord, to, to echo the spirit of unity in the bond of peace. Lord, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to pursue unity with your people. I don't know what it is for you. But, but whatever God is asking you to do, you say, Lord, It's worth it. It belongs to you. I treasure you more than I treasure my family. I treasure you more than I treasure my own comfort. Lord, I treasure you more than everything because you're better. May Jesus be better for us this year. Jesus over everything. We declare this at the end of our time together as we did at the beginning. May this be true of us and may the world see that there is no greater treasure in the universe than the treasure of relationship with Jesus. And may we share that treasure with the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.